As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Here we go. Welcome to the Zonal Marking Podcast Euro 2020 Preview Part 1. We are brought to you by The Athletic. This is, as ever, me, Ali Maxwell, joined by Michael Cox. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. And Tom Warville. Good day, Tom. Hey, Ali. How's it going? Very well. Fair to say that after a week off the pod, I'm heading into this episode and this weekend with a heady mixture of excitement, a lot of intrigue as well. We've left domestic club football behind and it's time to talk uh, Euros. And thankfully, you guys are laden with all the knowledge the research, the opinions that we need to break down this competition uh, in the zonal marking way. So Michael's going to do what he does, balancing detail and conciseness to give us an overview of each team, their tactics, mentioning their manager perhaps. Uh, And Tom, we've appointed you our head of technical scouting and recruitment analysis. And what that really means is you're going to pick out a player from each team, not the obvious superstars, not the star names, but rather the ones our listeners should be watching out for over the coming weeks you've dug them up using data their numbers and some interesting player profiles so on this episode we're talking groups a b and c and less than a day after this goes live you'll be able to find the subsequent episode profiling groups d e and f but it's going to be yeah quick fire and hopefully with some nice detail for you. And we're leaning on Michael to start with talking about Group A, which includes Italy, Switzerland, Turkey and Wales. Michael, you wrote six brilliant previews uh, for each group for The Athletic this week. And in each intro for each group, there was a, a theme of sorts. And for Group A, the theme was, you just quite like the look of this group. Quite a tough one to call, quite tight. Yeah, I think two themes, that and I think the lack of really good strikers as well is a, is a bit of an issue. I mean, the exception in this group is is Turkey, who have Burak Yilmaz up front, who actually I think is probably a, a decent out, outside bet for uh, the top goalscorer award after his season at Lille. But he's, what, 35, 36 now? Something crazy. The other teams, I think, is a big question mark about the centre forward. So, yeah, there's... there's um, to be honest, I think you can say that for the tournament as a whole. I don't think there's a great number of really established centre forwards 
um, for many teams throughout this competition. But yeah, that's quite apparent in Group A. Mm, a lot of people fancying Romelu Lukaku to win top goal scorer, Harry Kane, of course, and Bappe. Um, but it is a, a factor of some of the other sides as well. Let's look at Italy. They're obviously favourites to win this group. They'll have all three group games at the Stadio Olimpico while the others flit between Baku in Azerbaijan and Rome, of course. So they come into the tournament in some form as well with Roberto Mancini as their manager. He has the best win ratio of any Italy manager to have managed over 20 games, but their general major tournament record since their 2006 World Cup win is somewhat patchy. Uh, Quarterfinal in 08, group stage exit 2010 and 2014 World Cup. Didn't even qualify for the 2018 World Cup. They were runners-up, of course, dismantled by Spain in the final of Euro 2012 and reached the quarterfinals in 2016. So, a bit of form, some favourable conditions, but certainly with a point to prove, having missed the last World Cup, Michael, does Mancini's side look suited to tournament football? Yeah, I think they do. And I like their competitive record as well. I mean, you mentioned it in, in past tournaments, but you look at qualification for this, they didn't lose a game. A Nations League, they didn't lose a game. And so far in World Cup qualifying, they haven't lost a game. And I think we, we sometimes tend to look at all these teams and look at the players and think, well, I know him, he's a good player. But... Actually, how they perform on the pitch together as a group, I think, is really important. And and Italy, I think, have got a really, really strong unit. As you said, they've got home advantage as well. As I said, the only the only question I really have about them is is up front. I think even there, they've got options they can bring in. Probably Immobile and Belotti are going to be the, the two major ones. But, I mean, they've got a, a, a lot of really good wide players, which you never really associate with Italy over the years. Central midfield, I think Jorginho, Verratti, when he comes back from injury. And Barella is pretty much as strong as... You're going to get in the tournament. Chiellini and Benucci at the back, we know, have, have been a solid pairing or part of a trio for many years. And Donnarumma in goal. The spine of the team is very, very good. Not entirely sure about the fullbacks. Other wide areas, perhaps, the obvious weakness, just in terms of looking at the names on paper. Yeah, I mean, it, what they do very well is they play a kind of hybrid system. So, you know, like a few teams we've seen over the last couple of years, particularly Ventus actually in Italy, the fullbacks have different jobs. The left back, who somewhat surprisingly is going to be Emerson, that's the Chelsea Emerson, um, overlaps a lot and Florenzi tends to hold his position more and then out wide you've got Chiesa on the right who hugs that touchline and Insigne comes inside more so you end up with almost a front five and the two wide players are one fullback and one winger so Emerson and Chiesa and then you have Insigne, Barella and whoever the forward is in more central positions so they do have a kind of familiarity and a cohesion that I think not many other sides do. And I think they're really well placed to, to do well at this tournament. Yeah. So if they were one of the sides you mentioned who maybe has a question mark over the number nine position and who will score goals from that position, could that be slightly mitigated by the fact that their wide attacking players are sort of pure goal threats rather than out and out chalk on the boots, old school wingers? Yeah, definitely. Insigne in particular can come inside and love spending the ball towards the top corner from the inside left position. Chiesa I think is going to play on the right but he's, he's very much a goal threat regardless of where he plays and Barella as well who actually his numbers aren't quite as good as I expected looking at how many league goals he's scored but for Italy he's, he's done really well scored a great goal or rounded off a great goal um, in a 1-0 win over the Netherlands with uh, a good header and I think could be one of the, the real star players at this tournament actually so yeah I, I really like him I think they I would be surprised if they didn't get to the semi-final and also they've got a manager in Mancini who you know there's not many manager that, managers at this tournament who have real experience of managing big clubs and winning titles and that kind of thing. Mancini is one of the you know one of the ones with a good track record. So 
Yeah, I fancy Italy. And it's two thumbs up for Nicolo Barella, Tom, because he's our Italian player to watch. Yeah, absolutely, Ali. Um, I think Barella is definitely one to watch. And I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of hype, a lot of speculation in the Italy camp that he could be their star as well. And I kind of, yeah, picking up on Michael's comment about his numbers not being too good. Uh, I mean, I'm intrigued that I think part of the reason for that is because he's playing behind Romelu Lukaku and, and Lautaro Martinez, who are the the prime goal threats for Inter and he's not been a a huge scorer in in his career but what I think he does so well is kind of shuttles the ball between the defence and the the attack and is just a very very good progressor of the ball both in terms of carrying it forwards uh, as a passer as well he excels at that too and looking at the the numbers on FB ref which are powered by Statsbomb which is something we'll refer to a lot in this podcast he has seven progressive passes per 90 which is in the, the 95th percentile for all midfielders so that that shows just how much that he's able to get the ball forwards, um, you know, either through the lines or getting it into the box and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think that in a midfield of Verratti, who obviously is is technically excellent and very good under pressure, Jorginho, who kind of will be the metronome of this team, I think that Barella offers something completely different. And um, yeah, excited to see how uh, how he plays for Italy. What a stylish group of midfield players uh, this Italy squad contains. Uh, they're up against Switzerland in this group, Michael. They've actually been to nine of the last ten major tournaments, and as a nation, a footballing nation, I should say, have have made great strides really since the turn of the millennium. Before that, they were rarely seen in these tournaments. But despite their presence in recent major tournaments, they haven't got past the round of 16 in any major tournament since the 1954 World Cup. Uh, What chance that they could trouble the scorers this summer under manager Vladimir Petkovic? Yeah, I like Petkovic. I mean, he did a good job at Lazio, so he'll be going back to the Olympico there for the game against Italy. He's been in charge of Switzerland for a long time now. I find it difficult to make a case against them doing anything other than what we've seen them do in, in recent tournaments, really. I think they'll get out of the group. Can't really see any reason why they will progress further than that. Um, they've changed system. I think at the last tournament they were using a back four. Now it looks like they're going to be a back three. A couple of question marks there. I think Fabian Scher is going to be fit, which means Rodriguez will probably play as a left wing back rather than as a left-sided centre-back, which I think is very much more suited to playing out wide, isn't he, with his crossing. Um, they are good in the centre of the pitch. I like the combination of Xhaka and Freuler a lot. I think they just work really well. Xhaka sits there, left of centre. His passing range is very good. I think he plays better generally for Switzerland than he does for Arsenal. And Freuler, who, who people will know from Atalanta, good up-and-down box-to-box midfielder. They're still very dependent on Shakiri for creating chances. They used to be very dependent on Shakiri for scoring goals. His, his scoring rate in his first 40, 50 international games is really good, but it's, it's dipped significantly. Um, and neither Imbolo nor Seferovic really are prolific. Although I do like the combination of them. Again, I like Imbolo's pace and Seferovic. I think he's quite an intelligent player. So yeah, I just think we'll, we'll see more of the same from Switzerland. They are one of the most reliable sides in international football, aren't they? And uh, I can imagine last 16 is uh, potentially where we'll see them go out again. Second nation in a row, Tom, where Michael has mentioned the player that you want to talk about, Braille Mbolo, our Swiss man to watch. Yeah, Mbolo is an interesting one because I mean, he was very, very hyped at, at Basel younger in his career and moved to Schalke and didn't really set the league alight there, even though on paper that felt like a decent step up. It's not as aggressive in terms of the the step up in quality like the Premier League would have been. Um, it probably suited him as well, where he'd, he'd be able to see a lot of a lot of time on the pitch as a 20-21-year-old. But I moved to Mönchengladbach a couple of summers ago and I think that's really helped his career and probably helped him get back on track and get back to where we thought he might be now as, as someone uh, who's 
I think 24 years old versus where we thought he could have been at uh, a few seasons ago when he was, um, you know, at Schalke at Basel. So um, really hard working striker up front, pressures a lot, is very keen at closing players down. And I think that we linked him in the past uh, as a potential, you know, Firmino replacement or backup because he does a lot of the things that, that Firmino looks to do in that sense. So uh, yeah, 18.6 pressures per 90 is in the 85th percentile, which shows you, you know, that's that's a pretty pretty high number but also he mixes that with getting into good goal scoring positions as well so I think that his XG per 90 on on non-penalty shots is a smidgen over 0.5 which again really really good um, and shows that he's you know he's able to mix the workload out of possession with actually getting into goal scoring chances as well so whereas we probably peg Firmino more as a you know false nine and someone who does more of the defending than the attacking I think Breland Bolo is able to do a bit of both so yeah expect to see him you know pressing from the front I think he's far more mobile than Safari which is maybe not as good in the air um, but I, yeah that should be a decent partnership for Switzerland and like Michael said with Shakiri's goal scoring record falling off could be a, an important source of goals this tournament Now I'm quite intrigued by this Turkey side also in Group A Michael in your preview piece you describe them as falling perfectly into the category of dark horses now I'm interested to know how you define that phrase because it's subjective in a way who sort of qualifies as a dark horse what is it about Turkey that made you write that about them? Yeah I think we're past the stage where we can call Belgium dark horses every year aren't they now they've got some of the best players in Europe. Um, I say that really because, I mean, they got to the semifinals in 2002 and they got to the semifinals in 2008 and they've only ever qualified or they've only qualified for one other tournament in the last 20 years. So it just feels like either they get to the tournament and they're really good or they don't get there at all. I find it difficult really to work out this Turkey side. I mean, just even if you just look at the score lines, in qualification, they were winning a lot of games to nil keeping a lot of clean sheets. And in the last year or so in friendlies in the Nation leagues, uh, Nations League, they've had, I think, three three-alls. They've won a game 3-2. They've had a couple of 2-2s. So they seem to have almost flipped from being a pretty defensive side to, to suddenly scoring and, and conceding a lot of goals. I mean, Gunez, who was in charge in 2002, generally likes attacking football. That's what he's been renowned for throughout his career. But he's surely going to try and keep things tight. And... I think I do have one of the more formidable centre-back pairings in this uh, tournament, Di Morale, who's at Juventus and, and Soyuncu at Leicester. I think they'll play at times on the break. And up front in Yilmaz, they've got the best centre-forward in this group by quite a long way. So, yeah, I, I, I would say they're one of the more unpredictable sides mm. in this tournament. Well, because although they have Yilmaz, who's so experienced at international and club level, it's a bit of a new generation as well. Half of the squad have 15 caps or fewer in this in this Turkish side. But that experienced manager, Michael, Şenol Gunes, just talk me through his previous life as Turkey manager. He oversaw basically their, their greatest tournament moment, right? Yeah, in 2002 when they uh, got to semi-finals and finished third eventually. Um, it was a weird tournament that, a lot of big sides going out early. But I mean, he's he's achieved a lot more than that as well. You know, he was at Besiktas for a few years and had great success there and just seems to have got the group together and I know that's a bit of a almost uh, great bunch of generic lads. thing yeah it's a bit of a generic thing to say but I've always got the impression that Turkey have struggled with that over the last 10 or 15 years they've often had a really good generation of players that haven't always been on the same page and I think I've only seen a couple of games they've played over the last year 18 months but at times their attacking movement is really good and uh, I think they'll be 
a relatively exciting side mm. to watch. I'm looking forward to learning a little more about uh, some of those guys who I mentioned, half of the squad with 15 caps or fewer. But the, the Turkish player to watch, Tom, you couldn't move away from one of the better known Turkish players as well in, in Hakan Çalhanoğlu. Yeah, I guess my role in this pod, Ali, was, was picking out the players who aren't the most well-known and those who, you know, those who, for an average viewer, you wouldn't be that familiar with. But I think Chanoglu's a, a tough one to miss out just because with my head of recruitment hat on, his contract's coming in to an end this summer. You know, it's potential that the potential that he could re-sign again at, at Milan, but um, he's been linked with, with Manchester United before and, dare I say, Arsenal as well, who are also looking for another creative attacker. So I think there's a, there's a kind of a Premier League slant to why we care about him in this tournament. But also kind of profile-wise... He's interesting that he can play as number a number ten. He can play off the left or off the right, and he he reminds me a bit of Bruno Fernandez in in the way that he kind of stays out of the box quite a lot. Doesn't really look to take players one on one. He's quite neat with his passing. He's a threat from from set pieces uh, as well, which is obviously extremely useful and and could be a good source of goals. And he loves shooting from range as well. Um, something that again in this parish we probably. Uh, care less about value less but I think from a fan's point of view it should be fun watching Chal Noglu trying to wind up from 20-25-30 yards literally the one thing that springs into my mind every time I see his name is a goal that he scored I think for Hertha Berlin against Dortmund a free kick with Weidenfeller in goal which he hit from basically the edge of the centre circle no wall or anything everyone else is just kind of milling around and he just strikes it and and because of the way he can strike the ball um, which is with that knuckleball motion Weidenfeller just has he hasn't got a Scooby what's going on and it flies past him into the top corner while he's moving the other way so hopefully we could see him recreate that Um, I'm not sure whether they might have some slightly more uh, technical set piece routines than that but um, no a player to watch for sure Uh, and Wales round off this group Michael they finished top of their group in 2016 which I think sometimes gets forgotten you had a Portugal team who won the tournament finishing third Wales obviously with an historic performance to reach the semi-final but they actually topped their group with England, Russia and Slovakia. They beat Northern Ireland and Belgium in the knockouts as well before falling to the eventual winners, Portugal. What chance of a repeat here, Wales under Rob Page's management? Yeah, I don't think they're as good a side as they were five years ago. Um, Obviously, it's been a strange time for them, Rob Page taking over slightly unexpectedly. The one thing I'd say about them is I think they've got tactical options. I mean, they've got a solid base at the back. They're going to play three-man defence, as they did last time. Pretty solid in the centre of midfield. And then going forward, I mean, they've got Daniel James. They've got Gareth Bale. We know they've got tremendous speed to play on the break. And up front, they've got Kiefer Moore, who can offer a more direct option. He's good at bringing people into play. Um, And then with Aaron Ramsey's runs from midfield as well, they do just have a lot of... Yeah, a lot of technical players, a lot of different tactical options that I think could be quite useful. So I think they're probably stronger than the sum of their parts. Obviously, matching a semi-final performance will be very tricky. But um, yeah, they're one of those sides that just because of the nature of the tournament, you would probably count on them to get out of the group. What about how they will go about using Bale and Ramsey? Obviously, the two biggest names in terms of world football uh, in the squad. But uh, certainly in Bale's case, not having played a huge amount of football at club level this season and off the top of my head has always had a slightly different role with Wales anyway. How do they get the most out of those two players while also remaining a a really solid unit? Yeah, there's various options. I mean, five years ago, they tended to play Bale and Rams in the front three, sometimes floating behind a main striker, sometimes Bale was the main striker. I think it's more likely at the moment that Ramsey is probably going to play as one of the two central midfielders 
Bale will play kind of inside right role off the right. The interesting thing is, I mean, more for anyone who hasn't seen him plays for Cardiff and is what six foot five, I think he must be. And he's you know he's good with his feet as well. He's good with his back to goal. But when you look at the centre backs in this group, I mean, I said earlier, I think Turkey have got a couple of really formidable centre backs and Italy as well. If you're playing up against Chiellini and uh, and Bonucci. I'm not sure you want to test them with a real six foot five direct player. And what Wales have done over the last couple of years is they varied it. Sometimes Daniel James has played up, you know, almost as a false nine. Bale, of course, can play there. Sometimes Harry Wilson has played there. All of these players float around more, make runs in behind more. So I, I almost feel a little bit sorry for more that they've got this kind of draw because I think tactically it might be more suited to playing a, a rotating band of three players rather than having the fixed centre forward. Sort of suggesting that like an elephant being scared of a mouse rather than another elephant, Chiellini and Bonucci might not be scared of an elephant in Kiefer Moore, but someone like James running around their ankles, you know, darting in behind and pulling them this way and that would be more of an issue for them potentially. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that to their faces. (laughs) No, no, nor would I, to be fair. Um, uh, And Tom, uh, another championship player is our Welsh player to watch for the tournament. Yeah, I guess something of a mouse potentially in David Brooks, who... It's fallen out of the spotlight a little bit since Bournemouth's relegation. And I don't think we saw too much of him in, in 2019-20 either. Um, I think he he was good in his debut season for Bournemouth in, in 1819. But yeah, someone who, again, played at a very, very good level on a Bournemouth side, which you know wasn't amazing in 2018-19, I guess was reliant on a lot of Ryan Fraser and Callum Wilson's attacking but I think he was a young young bright spot there as well but um, he's come back this season after some injury issues and he's got five goals and five assists and averaging one or the other every five games or so so not a, a huge return but I think that I mean Brooks is turning 24 soon so definitely out of the, the you know younger end of his career and this is probably you know a good time for him to to show that he's still got it and still deserving of, of those kind of links beforehand to the likes of, of Manchester United and others so yeah I, I'm intrigued to see how Brooks plays and I guess Putting the question back to you, Ali, how um, with your championships hat on, how he's kind of performed this season? Well, one of Brooks's his problems has been staying fit uh, for any proper length of time, uh, not just this season, but I think previously as well. He, he's it, it's a tough one because players get labelled injury prone, where sometimes it can just be a run of poor luck. So I wouldn't necessarily say it, it's going to be an issue for him in his career to come, but it has just held him back a little bit over the last few seasons. But in full flow, he's brilliant to watch. He's brilliant in transition, carries the ball really well. He's like an eel sort of sliding through uh, sliding through defences. I, I wonder if if Bale is going to play off the right at times, whether that might slightly hinder Brooks's ability to, to get on the pitch. But certainly a brilliant player to watch. Also, won the Toulon tournament player of the tournament in 2017 wearing an England shirt. So that's four years ago. Uh, he was playing for England at the Toulon tournament and here he will be representing Wales at Euro 2020. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Group B next, and that includes Belgium, Denmark, Russia, and Finland. Michael, something to be aware of in this tournament versus your average international tournament is a home advantage factor. I mean, we talked about home advantage quite a lot this season when it came to playing in empty stadia, but it's not really what we're talking about here. In this group, for example, because this is a pan-European tournament with a number of host cities, you've got Denmark. They have all three of their group games at home and Russia have two of their three. So you sort of automatically feel a bit sorry already for those sides who aren't host nations. Yeah, I think it's a major factor. That's what I focused on from a preview for this group. I mean, we I don't think we've considered it enough. I think we've talked about this cross-continental thing in terms of fans getting around, then in terms of the COVID situation, obviously. But yeah, home advantage, it's changed massively. You don't, we've never had this kind of thing before in a, a tournament. And this is a very strange group where, where there's two sides who have home advantage and then Russia go from having home advantage to being away against Denmark in the last game. So yeah, it's, it's quite strange. Um, but I think it's quite a fun group. I think there'll be some interesting matches here. And I guess it works out relatively well in the sense that Belgium are the best team, but they don't have home advantage. So there are, I think, three, you know, all due respect to Finland, I think they've got an uphill task. But there's three sides, so I think we'll fancy finishing in the, the top two places. Belgium, of course, have got Roberto Martinez in charge. Uh, they were the semi-finalists in Russia in 2018 at the World Cup. They lost 1-0 to France, a set-piece goal from Umtiti. They went a million miles away from the final there, were they? Uh, and England, of course, the other losing semi-finalist, they've gone through a huge overhaul since then in just three years. But almost by contrast, for Belgium, of the 14 players that played against France that day, the starting 11 and three subs, only Vincent Kompany, Marouane Fellaini and Moussa Dembele don't feature this time around. Michael, is this a case of sort of strength in continuity or issues with emerging talent? To certainly say the latter. I mean, it's a golden generation, isn't it? And golden generations do tend to stick around for maybe one more tournament than they should. Go back 10, 15 years, Belgium didn't really have any world-class players at all. And now they're getting to the stage where they're looking for the next generation. I'm not sure that they're there, but they do have, I mean, they have some fantastic players. De Bruyne is arguably the best playmaker in this tournament. Uh, Lukaku is arguably the best centre-forward in this tournament. Uh, I think there are question marks, particularly about the defence. I don't tend to put a big emphasis upon the age of players, but I think with the Tongan and Alderweireld getting on a bit in terms of age and the fact that Martinez wants them to play high up the pitch, he wants a high line, he wants to press, I do wonder whether they will be exposed a little bit in that respect. That's interesting. So it's not necessarily, you know, Bonucci and Chiellini are quite old defenders, but it fi- it almost feels like the fact that they are Italian and the way that the Italian defences tend to play. It doesn't get held against them in a tournament like this. Almost it's a, a positive, their experience, their leadership. When it comes to Belgium, you're right. There's a lot of, well, look how creaky their back line is. So is it, it's kind of dependent on how, whether they will be exposed um, because of that. I think so. We know what Martinez is all about. He's never been the best at drilling a defence and keeping it tight. He does expect a lot of individual centre-backs. But I do think they have a a few obvious strengths. I like them out wide in terms of wing-backs. There's a few sides playing back three in this tournament. Belgium, I think, have probably better wing-backs than anyone because they can start with Mounier, who always does really well at international tournaments, and Torgan Hazard. And then they can probably rotate and bring in Nasser Chadli, who, again, has done really well at some past tournaments, and Yannick Carrasco, 
who I think at times had an excellent season for Atleti. So, yeah, they've got lots of uh, options out wide. And who's their player to watch, Tom? I think it's got to be Jeremy Doku, who's 19 years old, right winger, and he's someone who uh, replaced uh, Rafinha at Rennes back in 2019-20. Rafinha, of course, going to to Leeds. And, um, yeah, he's one of those players who is a bit of the kind of Neymar YouTube highlight compilation star who is fantastic taking players on -on one-on-one. I mean, he does it. 5.8 5.8 times per 90 completes it around 50 or just over 50 percent of the time and volume wise like that's up there in the top five percent of wingers in europe so he does a lot of dribbling a lot of carrying loves to try and beat players but it's the classic you know no end product conundrum which i think will will come in the future i mean he's only 19 he'll add that to his game so i think that yeah he's a he's the youngest player in belgian squad he's their only i think under 23 player in there so he's something of a uh, an outlier in that sense but, and also I guess the rest of Belgian squad are just so good technically and just so good kind of on the ball and maybe he's just so quite raw uh, at his young age but yeah an exciting place to watch someone to keep an eye on maybe he won't make a big dent in this tournament but if he you know classic if he adds the the end product to his game then he probably adds another zero to his his price tag really so um, yeah Jeremy Doku for me is the, the one to watch So now it's Denmark who as I mentioned are playing all three of their games in Copenhagen and had this tournament Michael been played when it was meant to be played last summer Orga Horeider would have been their manager and instead it's Kasper Juhlmann what are the strengths and weaknesses of this Danish side? I think big strengths and big weaknesses strengths very solid in defence really good spine I mean they've got a host of really good centre backs I think the starters are going to be Kier uh, and Christensen, who I think had a really good season at Chelsea when he played. But also they've got Anderson, who again was excellent at Fulham to come in and, uh, and Vestergaard as well. Um, so they could shift to three at the back. I think no problem there. But I think really central midfield, I mean, Hoiberg and Delaney is as strong, as physical, as commanding a central mid, uh, midfield duo as you're going to find. Christian Eriksen obviously playing the number 10 role and a couple of good overlapping fullbacks as well. The problem is up front, or going forward, I should say more broadly, I think they're struggling. They don't have a good centre forward. I've said before that I don't think that's necessarily a barrier to doing well. I think it's going to be Jonas Wind up front. But the problem really is that Braithwaite and Paulson haven't really started that much this season or haven't played much this season. And obviously there's a balance to be found. You don't want tired players going into a tournament, but uh, you do want players who've kind of played themselves into form and I don't think they have that but that said I think they are probably the most befitting side of the dark horses tag because I think they'll keep things tight I don't think they'll concede goals I would fancy them to get a goal from somewhere going forward maybe set pieces they've got centre backs who are good in the air they've got Christian Eriksen who's a very good set piece taker so yeah I, I fancy them I think they're in better shape for a tournament than I can remember for a long long time obviously won it in 92 I guess 98 they're a decent side but yeah they look in very good shape to me could follow the Greece 2004 blueprint who would be there Trinos Delas scoring those goals from uh, set pieces I mean just a more general question Michael at international level when it comes to major tournaments and you know how different the football is compared to what you might look for when building a team at club level of course you don't really have a choice of building a team anyway you, you kind of get what you're given at international level is it preferable let's assume you can't be a complete team and you have to have a weakness somewhere. Is this the right way round? You know, having a really good, solid defensive unit, good midfield players, and maybe lacking a little bit 
at the very top of the pitch rather than maybe a few other teams at this tournament who got some quite eye-catching attacking players that we all know and love but maybe lack a little at the other end of the pitch yeah I think so it's about not losing isn't it I mean Portugal uh, with a great example of that three years ago uh, sorry five years ago didn't win any of their three group games as you mentioned at the top I mean it's interesting though because uh, Kasper Juhlman's come in and I mean, he's a much younger, much more progressive coach than than Horrider. I mean, so you can look at it either way. You can say that they've got quite a positive-minded coach, but not necessarily the attacking players. It's a funny kind of situation, but they, they do look a good side to me. And I think clean sheets are important. And, and uh, Kasper Schmeichel, I think, had a really good season, didn't he? And brilliant in the FA Cup final as well. Um, you need someone who's going to keep clean sheets. And I don't think there's too many better goalkeepers in this tournament than Schmeichel. And Tom, which player might I fall in love with? I, I assume they're wearing Hummel-made kits, which is always a good start for me. Um, which player am I going to be frantically Googling at half-time in their first game? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, again, he's probably a bit more of a, a niche option that may not see too much time on the pitch. But Mikhail Damsgaard is the one that um, is a bit of a numbers sweetheart, really, just because he's, he's one of those wingers who is really hardworking and puts a lot of you know effort and energy in off the ball and he pressures more than any other player in Europe or any other winger in Europe on a on a kind of per 90 basis and disrupts opposition moves a ton as well when we look at some of the data from Smarter Scout as well but his output is similar to that of kind of Lucas Moore and Andros Townsend and, uh, and those guys are kind of I guess more functional wingers who, yeah, do this, you know, offer the same sort of stuff off the ball, but with the ball at their feet, don't actually contribute a lot in terms of goals and assists. And he's seen his numbers drop quite a bit from from leaving FC Nordschland in in Denmark to to moving to Sampdoria where he plays now. Uh, Eleven goals and six assists last season, down to two goals and four assists this season. But I think he could make a, an impact off the bench and. Um, you know, with the with the five subs rule, I think being able to have someone who just is a box of energy coming onto the pitch and using him as either a very high pressing fullback or even a high pressing winger is a is a nice option to have. And I think yeah, Damsgaard could play that role really really well. Russia have Stanislav Cherchezov as the coach, former national team goalkeeper in the nineties, and they're one of those sides, Michael, who's players mostly play in their own domestic league, and that's a league that we are not naturally exposed to I suppose so what sort of a squad do you think Chechezov has at his disposal don't fancy him much in defence individually I think they've got problems there um, going forward I think they're quite exciting I mean uh, I expect most people will know or remember Alexander Golovan he's now in Monaco really good player on his day I think that's the, the key factor and I like Marantzik as well who's um had a kind of bit part role at Atalanta, but occasionally looked really good. And then up front, they got Zoiber, who uh, his international record is excellent. I think he's got 29 goals in 50-odd games. Um, was dropped from uh, the side midway through last season, as people might have read about, because of a explicit video leak, which is the second most notable explicit video-related story after the kind of Benzema uh, blackmail thing, I suppose. But he's back in the side, back in the captain's armband. And I tend to think strikers like him, and by that I mean a very tall uh, aerial force I think they're more useful international level and club level I think teams defend deeper I think build up play is a bit simpler Um, and he's the kind of player where if he has a good tournament you never know how far they can go but I just think they'll concede too many goals I don't like the look of their defence there's a few positional things I'm uncertain of Yuri Zhirkov is still getting uh, in the defence which Chojashov has really had to go out of his way to defend his place there the goalkeeper situation is weird as well they've had three or four number ones over the course of about 18 months going to go with Anton Shunin I must say, I know very little about him, but he's 
34 now. Question was always, what will happen after Akin Fayev? And what you're telling me here is <laughs> they still haven't really worked out the answer. It sounds like yeah. it sounds like you could say the same about the Berezoitsky twins as well. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I, I think they were briefly considering bringing back uh, Akin Fayev. And they had a uh, spell with uh, Guilherme, Brazilian-born goalkeeper. Um, but yeah, have have, uh, have gone back to Shunin or have, have turned to Shunin, I should say. And yeah, like I said, I'm not speaking about this from any great authority because I haven't seen him play very much. But sometimes you look at a player and you think he's 34. He hasn't got that many caps. You wonder really what that's all about. So yeah, I, as I said before about Denmark, I, I place a big emphasis on, on keeping it tight at the back. I don't think Russia will do that. What they will do well is I think they'll change system. Um, Chojicov is a, is a good tactician. I'd be surprised if they named a single unchanged eleven in this tournament, and I think they'll probably play at least two or three formations as well. And who could be the, the standout player? Who could be the one that that makes things happen for them, Tom? I think always. Oh, I mean, the obvious answer here usually with Russia in a tournament is up to this point probably Alan Zagoev, who's someone who, as soon as I think of Russian national team, I always just think of him and thinking, oh, he must be an exciting young talent who still hasn't moved away from Saskia Moscow and he still hasn't um, but no it's it's not Zagov this time it's going to be um, Alexander Golovin who similarly to, to Zagov has had his injury issues of late but this season in, in Liga when he's when he's featured he's been fantastic I mean it's in limited minutes I think he's played about 11 90s worth of, of minutes so just around a thousand he's put up the best uh, combined expected goals and expected assist numbers of any player in the league even higher than, than Kylian Mbappe uh, and, and Neymar so yeah as, as been very very effective when on the field very versatile uh, he can play as kind of an inside forward on the left he can play as a number 10 he can play on the left of a midfield three and I just really like him in you know in, in tight spaces he's really nice he's a good passer of the ball he's happy to carry it as well and yeah I think there's a lot to like about Golovin and uh, again fitness is a is a question but of course again with you know the, the the subs maybe they don't have to eke every single minute out of him in this tournament but I think if things are going to come from that midfield it's probably him that it's going to come through always nice to welcome a major tournament debutant Michael that's what we have in Group B with Finland what got them through qualification for this tournament and how can we expect them to approach things good organisation really good tactics I think they will probably play three at the back but they can play four four two as well I found them difficult really to work out in in the games I watched them they're not they're not spectacular going forward but they are very well organized defensively I think they will probably be dominant in terms of possession for all three of their group games they will try to play relatively quickly up to the the four players uh Timu Puki everyone knows about so I won't talk about him I think Urunen down the left flank is maybe a player who could be quite exciting can overlap and get crosses in yeah, they kind of say like, I expect them. I think if you if you off if you said to them how many goals do you want in this game ahead of each of the games, they'd have a think whether it's between zero goals or one goal. You know, either either they're playing for nil nil or they're trying to nick a one nil win. I don't think they'll be outclassed, but I, I'm struggling really to make a case for them going far in this tournament. I must say. And obviously, Temu Puki is their star and a brilliant finisher they've also got another young Finn who's a brilliant finisher Marcus Force it might be hard to get them both on the pitch at the same time Tom given what Michael's just said about the way they, they will probably approach games with both of these players being 
pretty much out and out number nines but force could be a real difference maker off the bench she's got a real life a goal yeah absolutely um me someone gets into fantastic scoring positions is is xg per 90 of 0.61 i think was the fourth best in the championship among players with, with 500 minutes or more so i think part of that is is inflated a bit from him being a substitute for brentford this season but uh he's been yeah great at, at getting into those positions when on the field um and i mean yeah the other thing as well which i find quite interesting is he barely touched the ball for brentford i mean they're a side to have a fair amount of possession and maybe it's just the way that, that their strikers look to play but i think even tony had a lot more touches than than fours is 25 per 90 and only four strikers managed fewer in the championship this season so yeah shows that it may be something of a poacher but looking through his goals i mean he's someone who just has a very clean strike of the ball and yeah offers something probably a bit different to Puki who you know, times his runs really well and uh, and has a very specific kind of goal that he scores but Fors also he's not just a striker I think he's played on both wings of Brentford this season and as uh, as a kind of a more advanced midfielder as well at times too so uh, a lot to like him there he's only 21 years old turns 22 on, on June 18th as well so um, if he's one that we're not going to see too much of in the Euros we should hopefully see him in the Premier League next season I hope we do have a moment where and this is very much one where you need to subscribe to the view that any team chasing a game will have one chance at some point uh, to level things up if it does fall to Marcus Force then you'd be more confident than most that he'd put it away that's for sure this episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds's small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Group C has the Netherlands, Ukraine, Austria, North Macedonia, and the inclusion of North Macedonia and I suppose Finland as well, Michael, who we've just discussed, it reminds us about the expansion of the European Championships that came ahead of the 2016 tournament where we expanded to 24 teams. Now, it has obviously had an impact on the very format, the structure of the tournament. I guess what are the what are the consequences of that expansion? What do you think about them? Do they make the tournament better or do they make it worse? Um, I'm a little bit, how do I put it? I, I do kind of yearn for the days of the 16-team tournament just because it felt like every game mattered straight away. I mean, the interesting thing with North Macedonia, Finland qualified for this fair and square through the usual qualification. North Macedonia, of course, came from the Nations League D, which was really a kind of very unprecedented move from UEFA saying, look, we're just going to almost hand out a place to, to one of the weaker European nations. And a lot of people were sceptical about that. I thought it was quite fun, but might produce a complete no-hoper. I don't think North Macedonia will be, actually. I think they're a decent side, really good organisation, um, and some good players in certain positions as well. So, yeah, it's. I, I think this is the weakest group in the tournament, if we're being honest. The, you know, the, the recent track record of these sides at tournaments is not very good. Even the Netherlands haven't quite, uh, qualified for the last two major tournaments, which is extraordinary considering their 
historical record. I, I, f- I feel um, the, I, I just feel the need to say that my negative connotations weren't linked to necessarily the quality of the teams involved. More the fact that just the very nature of having twenty four teams means that you play a whole group stage to lose only eight of them rather than chopping half the field, if you will. So it just causes kind of, I guess, for me anyway, a suboptimal format rather than, you know, I have no issue with including any team that qualifies, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do find uh, I do find the format for it slightly weird. We seem to have that with a lot of tournaments now. I mean, Women's World Cup is 24 teams. The Copa America is 12 teams. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it is a problem in international football, I think. Maybe not as egregious as this year's Copa America, where they have a 10-team group stage in order to cut two teams out of it and move forward with the quarterfinals from there. Anyway, we digress. Uh, I want to know about the Netherlands. It's their first major international tournament since the World Cup in 2014. Uh, They are another side with three home games. And I think there's an expectation that they'll glide through this group. Frank de Boer's their manager, Michael. How does he have them playing? Yeah, it's... um... It's a funny one with with the Netherlands. There's some, you kind of look at the Netherlands and you always expect them to play the classic Dutch way. I'm not really sure they do under De Boer. There are a few typically Dutch things there. They've got good ball-playing centre-backs, even without Van Dijk. They've got very good central midfield players. What they really lack compared to the classic Dutch sides is, is real quality out wide. And I think going forward, they are relying a lot on Depay, who has been excellent over the last couple of years. Obviously, we didn't see the best of him in England. He's the kind of player I think can almost run the attack by himself. And I think he will be, uh, yeah, looking to receive the ball on the break and dribble past players and, and yeah, almost uh, carry everything forward himself. They've also got Luke de Jong, who can come off the bench, probably off the bench rather than starting, to play a bit more of a classic number nine role. And I think they will, I fancy them very much to get out of this group because it's not a very good group. But uh, yeah, it's it's probably not as strong a Dutch side as, as you would like to see on their return to a the tournament after what seven years away mm. feels incredible but yeah seven years away amazing i'm hoping for a big tournament from memphis to pie who you mentioned there uh, but tom they've also got another attacking wild card up their sleeve yeah absolutely and that's uh that's wow weghorst um who i've had described to me as the wide jamie vardy which is a fantastic <laughs> nickname sorry the um, why just the wide because of his build because of his stature right. because of his build yeah okay. Vardy is probably you know more of a, a beanstalk and Veghorst is definitely a tree trunk compared to him <laughs> um, tears around the pitch you know pressing from the front and I mean he's six foot five so he is something of a train when he gets up to speed very very good in the air which makes him obviously a, a threat from set pieces and from crosses in open play as well and, and plays very much like a target man uh, with a lot of kind of the passes that he makes being those kind of trying to bring other players into play so which feels I guess different to what we'd expect from from the Dutch and and a big target man doesn't feel very total football-y but um, yeah he he's also shown a variety of finishes in the Bundesliga this season um, he's dinked the keeper a couple of times which is always pleasing to see from someone who you don't expect to maybe have that uh, as part of their game but um, yeah I think he's uh, there's a fantastic profile I mean, we've got a, an upcoming kind of big scouting project soon coming out on the Athletic and uh, and as part of that um, there's a bit of a bio on each of these these players and I think Veghorst has always had a bit of a chip on his shoulder that he was written off at a fairly young age and has slowly kind of come back year and year and I think he scored double figures every single season for the last six seasons and I think in his mind is constantly battling the kind of detractors of uh, against him people who just didn't think he'd make it so yeah he's a he's got a really interesting backstory and I think that he offers the Dutch something 
different, maybe a slightly more mobile version of Luke de Jong. And yeah, he's definitely the pick for, for the one to watch, mainly because now everyone will be thinking that's why Jamie Vardy, as he's tearing around uh, <laughs> up front. A good tournament this for tall, strapping centre-forwards, isn't it? We've talked about Kiefer Moore, Juba, uh, you've mentioned Veghorst there and Kalajic, of course, we've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast as well for Austria. Um, that is uh, a nice wrinkle to this tournament. Ukraine next up, Michael, they've got Andriy Shevchenko in charge. How's he been as a national team manager? Because he's he sort of followed up a brief dalliance with politics to take over the national team. It's been a, an absolute roller coaster a decade or so for him after retiring from his playing days. And I mean, I must admit, for some of the preview content I've read, including your own piece, my dark horse radar is, is bleeping pretty loudly when it comes to Ukraine. Yeah, would you like another towering centre forward, Ali? Yes, please. Well, they've got Roman Yaramchek, who I believe has had a very good season with Genk. Must admit, I didn't see much of the Belgian league, but he's done well for Ukraine as well in terms of his goal-scoring figures. And yeah, I think they're all right. I, I, they've got a, a centre forward who can score goals at international level. I think the midfield is very good. Stepanenko, Malinovsky and Zinchenko, that works really well on paper and from what I've seen, really well on the pitch as well. Their defenders are very much not household names, but they can keep clean sheets. Uh, go back to October last year, they very much parked the bus against Spain and won 1-0. I think they can keep clean sheets against the likes of North Macedonia and Austria and perhaps Holland as well. And yeah, I think they're a decent side. They're unspectacular, but they're well organised. They seem to be all on the same page in terms of tactics. Um, and yeah, I think they will get out of the group. And our Ukrainian player to watch, Tom, uh, has he got hints of Mr. Nikola Barella, who we spoke about at the top of the podcast in terms of the kind of profile of player that we're talking about here? I think, I mean, Ruslan Malinovsky is the man in question. I think that they share a, they share a position, but I think that Malinovsky is far more technically gifted than, than Barella is. And I think, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, I can't remember who, who the teammate is. I think it's Jim City, uh, the, the defender who recently labelled Malinovsky as Malin Boomski because <laughs> of his, his cannon. Um, That's very Thomas uh, Muller, isn't shot. it? It is. You can imagine the meme now of, of kind of the, the Muller leaning over the, uh, the you know the interview mic and saying, um, in in Ukraine we call him Malinbumsky. Nice. Um, he's so he's someone. I mean, he's got a excellent left foot uh, when it comes to come to shooting. Shoots with a lot of power, so that's something to watch out for. And also, he wasn't a bit of an uh, of an assisting streak uh, when he was kind of in the team for Atalanta towards the end of the season. Um, so he averaged, I think. 0.58 assists per 90 which when you think about the best players get around one assist every five games and he was averaging more than one every two um, he had a fantastic relationship with with both Duvan Zapata um, who he assisted six times in the league and also uh, Luis Muriel who I think he assisted four times so again between the two of them he's getting nine or ten assists out of them this season and, and shows that there was a good uh, relationship with the strikers there but um, yeah Malinovsky not a ton of minutes but a really good passer Great shooter, uh, you know, supplied a bunch of assists from different situations, whether they were kind of cute passes through the defence or kind of long range through balls from deep. So, um, yeah, he's he's 28 now, so probably a, a bit sneakily old and someone who is definitely into his prime now. So may not be, you know, have a, a bunch of years left at the top level. But, um, yeah, he's someone who's definitely worth watching. It will be the kind of creative spot from midfield for Shevchenko in Ukraine this summer. They are 
joined by Austria in Group C, who haven't won a game at a major tournament since the World Cup in 1990. Michael, Franco Foda, the manager, he has one of those very fascinating and, and kind of international football-specific questions, which is how to get the best out of your one world-class player, in this case, David Alaba, who also happens to be insanely versatile and, and can play in a number of different positions. How does Foda go about getting the best out of Alaba and the best out of this team? Uh, I don't know, and I'm not sure he completely knows. <laughs> I mean, I, I went back to look at three of their games from... When was it? Must have been the most recent international break back in March. And one of the games Alaba played left wing, one of the games he played central midfield, one of the games he played left back. And of course, this is a player who I think the previous week or the week after I saw playing for Bayern Munich at centre back. So, yeah, that does seem slightly odd to me. I think he will probably play left back, but Foda does like to chop and change in terms of systems. Um, and I think we'll probably see him in a variety of positions. I find it difficult really to know what to make of. Austria. At times they look well organised. You do look at their team and the likes of Stavitz is a really good player. Uh, Baumgartner as well I like a lot and, and Kaladzic up top has had a fantastic breakthrough year in the Bundesliga. He's one of those players who has benefited a lot from the tournament being delayed by a year. Yeah, I mean the, Austria funny side, aren't you? You mentioned their poor competitive record. I can't really see them going that far into this tournament. But again, in this group um, I think chances are they will probably get out of it. Sort of Tactical adjacent question. Uh, Red Bull Salzburg, they've won eight titles in a row in the Austrian top division. Uh, and around a third of this squad have played in the Red Bull system, if you will, either for Salzburg or for Leipzig in Germany or both. Uh, do you think the, the playing style of the national team has been impacted by the, the Red Bull dominance of Austrian football? Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, that's probably the most interesting, or maybe the only interesting thing really about this Austria side. I think that has played a part. And I don't really expect to see that much pressing at this tournament overall. I just don't think you see that at international tournaments. I don't think you're going to get it after the season we've just had where everyone's knackered. But I think Austria, they're one of the few sides who might be defined more by their pressing than by what they do with the ball, really. Because, um, yeah, they don't necessarily have the best individuals in an attacking sense. But I do think they, when I've seen them, they press quite cohesively. So that's one thing to look out for. Um, so, yeah, you're right, Ali. I think that has been a a big boost to them. And, and I think potentially in the future could be a boost in terms of coaches as well. There do seem to be some interesting Austrian coaches coming through um, as well as players. But they are a, a funny side. Like I say, of all the teams in this tournament, I'd probably have them, Poland and Turkey as the sides I'm least sure of how they'll perform. Mm, interesting. Um, any players, Tom, that you're sure will perform pretty well at these Euros? Yeah, Javis Schlager for me, the, the midfielder who plays at Wolfsburg, is, is definitely the one to watch. Um, he's got quite a distinctive look. He's quite short. He's quite stocky. He's got this kind of big blonde ponytail as well. Um, and he's just a, an absolute bruiser in midfield. I mean, very, very effective presser for Wolfsburg this season. Um, loves to kind of you know jump into tackles, very forward thinking with... You know, when he's in possession, either looking to beat a man and get it forward or, or pass forwards. Um, so I expect to see that when he kind of wins it back and, and his first thought would usually be getting it forwards. And he loves a shot too, a trait that he shares with uh, Marcel Sabitzer as well. So I think that Austria's midfield too, if, if he lines up alongside Comrade Le uh, Lima, there's a lot of energy in there, a lot of pressing. And like you say, Ali, that's kind of something that is born out of the, the Red Bull model. So um, yeah, Schlager for me is, uh, is the one to watch, mainly because I think that 
he could be a really important player for them in this tournament and also because I, I can't imagine it's too long before he's linked with a move to the Premier League and we get to see him more regularly. Michael, North Macedonia, their manager Igor Angelovsky, as you mentioned, they qualified via the Nations League, which is new. And I'd like to know how you think they'll approach their first European Championships. How will they set up? How will they try and progress? Um, they've played a couple of different systems. They've played either 4-2-3-1 or they've played three at the back. They, as you expect, they don't have great strength and depth. So often I think you'll see roughly the same combination of 11 players playing in two different systems. They're without Nesterovsky, who is actually a pretty handy number nine up front. Plays in Syria, sometimes come on as a, a decent super sub. Um, so it looks like they're probably going to play 3-5-2. Obviously, Goran Pandev is, is one of the forwards. Um, but they do have good quality in the midfield zone, actually. I'm not sure who Tom has singled out, but I imagine it will be one of the midfielders. Defensively, individually, they are... I'm not too familiar with them, aside from Aliovsky, must be honest. But their record in competitive games is pretty good, albeit against uh, relatively meagre opposition. But they did beat Germany 2-1 earlier this year, and I think that is a real warning shot for the other sides in this group. You know, they're not there just to, to make up the numbers. And I do think that having a side who has come through albeit a lowly Nations League group, um, it's just in the habit of winning games. They they have a good competitive record. I don't think that should be sniffed at. And I'd almost fancy them over someone who has kind of sneaked in through, you know, getting mediocre results in, in the um, the proper qualification. So I'm really interested to see how they do because I think it's an interesting experiment, really, throwing in someone who, who didn't qualify through the normal route. And like I said, I don't think they'll be outclassed and I think they're in the right group because I think this is... Uh, probably the weakest in the tournament. Again, you mentioned that they will likely play a 3-5-2, a 3 or 5 at the back system, however you like to say it, as we're always obliged to say. Uh, I, I mean, this is a question I'm not expecting you to know the exact answer to, but maybe uh, having previewed all of the teams, something you'll have a sense of. How many of, let's say, the 12 most unfancied teams, shall we say, the, the bottom half of the betting odds, let's say, of this tournament, do you think will adopt a three or five at the back system? It, it feels to me like, compared to previous tournaments, that might be uh, happening more and more, uh, uh, something of a trend, if you will. Uh, do you get that sense? And if so, what will that mean for how the games might look? Can we expect another low scoring tournament as teams go defence first. I think that's a very good point Ali and, and I'd add to that by saying I think more than usual there's a potential for a lot of sides to move between three and four at the back. I mean we've spoken about England, obviously that's a very obvious one um, but I think that, that could be the case with Netherlands in this group could be the case with Ukraine in this group, could be the case of North Macedonia in this group so yeah there's, there's probably more tactical flexibility and I think that's it's probably a sign of you know, a reflection of what's happened at club level over the last few years. I think there are more players who are accustomed to playing in both systems. So, yeah, th there's a few uncertainties in terms of shape. You know, Russia, another one, as we mentioned, can play both. So I wouldn't like to put a number on it. But yeah, I imagine we will see far more than at any tournament, probably more than at any European championships. Yes, I do. There is a school of thought that for entertainment purposes, for the neutral, uh, a ton of teams playing 3-5-2 against each other is not necessarily the best for entertainment. But, you know, I'm not here to, to judge. Uh, Tom, before we finish this episode, uh, tell me about a North Macedonian player to watch. Yeah, I've gone for um, Elif Elmas, um, who is probably the 
the star for North Macedonia. He's he's 21. He's a kind of a attack-minded midfielder who plays for Napoli, formerly of Fenerbahce. And I mean, he's someone who's super comfortable in possession. Really likes to to drive the ball forwards from deep, and is a pretty solid one versus one dribbler as well. Um, and it's quite a quirky stat where he's in the first percentile, so right at the bottom of all midfielders for his number of progressive passes. So he barely looks to pass it forward, but he's in the 82nd percentile for the times he looks to progressively carry the ball forward so someone who is a bit of a bull hog I guess in that sense but also gets a ton of touches in the box from midfielder 3.2 per 90 is is in the top 5% for all midfielders as well so in your mind you can kind of build this picture of someone who doesn't really pass from deep who likes to run with the ball forwards and also attacks the box and and makes those late runs in there as well so he's had to be really versatile for uh, Napoli under um, Gennaro Tuso this season as well and he's played kind of as from the wings in midfield both deeper and in an attacking sense so I think he'll have more of a, a very much kind of attack focused role for Macedonia and if they play with a, a 3-5-2 he'll be kind of one of the the free eights one of the runners either side of a more traditional holding midfielder so I'm quite excited to see him play because his numbers were good at Fenerbahce um, and then he's he's kind of been thrown around the pitch at, at Napoli and, and this is a chance for him to kind of show what's you know, Elmas in his preferred position actually looks like from my uh, my scouting and recruitment analysis point of view. Really interesting profile of player, that bit of a disruptor uh, in a way. So many good progressive passes uh, in this tournament. Here we've got someone who is allergic to that but absolutely loves carrying it. Uh, I'm all for that. Well, thank you, guys. That's been the preview of Groups A, B and C. Our next episode, which will be live on Wednesday, depending on when you listen to this, it might be out already. So make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed so that you can get the preview of Groups D, E and F straight to your phone when it is released on Wednesday, the 9th of June, uh, or just shift straight on to that episode now. Do read Tom Warville's the radar piece which he has alluded to once or twice uh, on this podcast it has nearly killed the young man I must admit but it's going to be an incredible piece to read uh, and we would push you towards that Michael's writing throughout the Euros I'm confident in saying will be magnificent as well so if you aren't a subscriber of The Athletic you can make the most of a really good new offer just £1 a month you'll pay for the first six months of your annual subscription if you head to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking to sign up today and next up for us it's groups D, E and F head to that episode for more Euros 2020 preview content from the Zonal Marking podcast. The Athletic.